we're talking about salvation history continuing to go on, we're not just talking about theory or doctrine. We're talking about an action of God. We're talking about something the Holy Spirit's doing. We're talking about the salvation of the world. We're talking about the difference between heaven and hell. We're talking about things that aren't like just academic subjects. They're things that affect people's lives and affect people's eternal destinies. So, um, oh, like almost 40 years ago, I wrote the book, uh, A Crisis of Truth. And then when COVID hit last year, I, uh, I all of a sudden had time in my hands. Uh, all our international travel got canceled, all our domestic travel got canceled, and, and two things happened. So it was like a silver lining for us. One thing is that I began to produce YouTube videos. You know, I hardly knew what a YouTube video was, you know, and people in our office were doing it. And uh, so we had 7,000 subscribers to our YouTube channel, and then uh, Peter Herbeck and I began to alternate uh, posting a new video each week, and, uh, and now we have over 54,000 people, and so people over the world now are, are being impacted. So in some way, we, we reached more people because of not being able to travel than if we had been able to travel. We're, we're looking forward to traveling again. We are traveling again. The second thing that happened was that uh, I had time to write this book, and uh, I actually wrote it in three months. That, that's sort of like, uh, my wife thinks that's the most significant thing about the book. She says, that proves it's a miracle. So anyway, I had a chance to write, write this book, and I felt like I needed to write it because I just feel like there's a lot of unease, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of fear going on in the world and people's lives, a lot of unrest in the church, like what's going on, and a lot of things happening that sometimes it's hard to understand. And so I felt like the Holy Spirit wanted me to identify some of the things that were going on so we don't have this nameless fear that's kind of causing anxiety and confusion. And I, I was really happy when shortly after the book was published, I got a letter from uh, a priest. And this is what he said. He said, I just wanted to let you know that I've been reading your new book. And wow, what a blessing it's been. I cannot begin to tell you what clarity it has given me. Reading it is like looking at a clear snapshot of the church. And now that the problems have been named, I have so much more peace in my heart. It's like I now know what we're dealing with. Before it was an amorphous cloud of confusion, but with your book, there's a new light. Praise God, it's given me, con he goes on to say, it's given me confidence to preach the gospel more clearly. I got like letters like that from bishops saying it's given them courage to carry out their Episcopal ministry. So I'm going to talk about some difficult things. I'm going to talk about some painful things. But uh, sometimes people say, Ralph, you know, you know a lot that's not going right. Uh, are you discouraged? And actually, I'm not discouraged at all. And the reason why I'm not discouraged at all is because Jesus is Lord. The reason why I'm not discouraged at all is because everything that's happening is happening under the providence of God. There's nothing that's going on in the world, in our culture. There's nothing that's going on in the church that God isn't permitting. And he's only permitting terrible things to happen because he's got a plan to bring good out of it. What good could he be bringing out of it? The judgment of unrepentant sinners. The purification of the church the revelation of the Lordship of Jesus Christ in a clearer way because there's clearer Christians who have stopped straddling the issue.
Chapter five in his book is called Stop Straddling the Issue. And there's a lot of people who have a foot in both the world, in the sense of the world as an enemy of God, and a foot in the church. And we've been used to a certain kind of harmony between culture and the church for many years. You know, we talked about America being a Christian country, uh, and, and that's eroding. And what's happening is that at least there used to be once a respect for the Ten Commandments, a respect for the church and synagogues in our culture. And that's quickly collapsing. And we're actually beginning to see the emergence of an extremely hostile and powerful secular culture that is unambiguous in its hatred for Christ and the church. And this is a very difficult situation for Catholics who have been used to have a harmony between culture and the church to deal with. And it's causing a lot of stress. It's like we're standing on a dock. We have one foot in a ship that's in a boat that's leaving the dock, another foot in the dock. We've got to jump. People, Jesus is calling for absolute allegiance. But now the culture is calling for absolute allegiance. We're being called to uh, burn incense to the new emperor, the new secular culture. We're being asked to give our loyalty to uh, a new ideology, which is actually a new religion. Uh, so let me talk about some of the things we're facing in the culture, some of the things we're facing in the church, then what we can do about it. You know, this is all above our pay grade, right? But there's things we all can do about it that can make a meaningful contribution to the accomplishment of God's plans. Well, first of all, in the culture, we're, we're now in a situation which very quickly all the levers of power are now in the hands of people who are hostile to Christ and the church and are creating a new narrative by which human beings can improve the world and save themselves. Whether it's the levers of power in the current administration of government or professional sports, believe it or not, or Hollywood, which has been a vanguard of all this, or entertainment, or uh, the public schools, it's getting harder and harder to consider putting children in public schools, and, and many Catholics don't have any, any other options. And that's why you know, homeschooling is growing. Uh, that's why people are you know, doing many other things. But uh, the brainwashing of little children into gender theory, into critical race theory, into uh, racial division, and, and confusion about sexuality is wicked. And it's in control. Of, of most of the educational institutions. It's, it's the new religion of many universities. At the University of Michigan, where I live in Ann Arbor, uh, I, honestly, you'd be asked to leave class if you actually raise any objection to the, the woke culture. Uh, you'd be petitioned by students saying, if a professor dared to say something different than the party line, the students would report you to the administration and a diversity officer would come and interrogate you. There's a hundred diversity offices now at the University of Michigan. Where'd they learn how to be diversity offices? I never heard about that major. They're hired for their political views. They're hired for their moral views. They're hired for their, whether they're with the program or not. And uh, it's just a different atmosphere. Academic freedom is finished. 
at the University of Michigan, at many, many universities, even some Catholic universities. You know, most of the Jesuit universities have gone over to the other side on, the, on these issues. That's why it's so important what Franciscan is doing. It's not reacting anything. It's acting towards Christ. It's acting towards the Lord. It's acting towards truth. It's acting towards reason. Who would ever thought that the Catholic Church would be one of the biggest defenders of reason and logic? You know, we still do believe that two plus two equals four, don't we? <laughs> but we're being forced to say in some situations the equivalent of two plus two doesn't really equal four, by the way, you know? In, in, in the whole confusion of male and female identity and all that kind of stuff. And there's an international elite that is no longer loyal to their nations, but is really feeling like they're the enlightened ones who really should be running the world. And that the problems that the world is facing right now require global solutions that no nation can really undertake. And there's very open calls for world government. Uh, all this is, is documented in, in solid detail. There's more than 500 footnotes documenting this. And if I didn't stop writing the book, I could write another 500 pages because every day more stuff like this is happening. Benedict XVI, after he retired, maybe he didn't feel like he could say this before he retired, but in his uh, long biography that uh, he did the interview with this interviewer on, this is what he says. You can find us on page 253 of the book. So Benedict says, 100 years ago, everybody would have considered it to be absurd to speak of a homosexual marriage. Today, one is being excommunicated by society if one opposes it. And the same applies to abortion and to the creation of human beings in the laboratory. Big news recently is they got human and mouse kind of stuff working together in a test tube. Benedict goes on, he says, modern society is in the middle of formulating an anti-Christian creed. And if one opposes it, one is being punished by society with excommunication. One is being canceled. One is being deplatformed. People we know, Lila Rose, uh, uh, Ryan Anderson, all kinds of people are having their books censored, their websites censored, their YouTube videos taken down. Uh, it's, it's really happening on a daily basis. Benedict goes on, he says, the fear of this spiritual power of the Antichrist is natural but we need to respond to it with prayer. So he's saying it's natural to be a little bit afraid about what's happening. And people are more than a little bit afraid sometimes of something under the surface that's happening. But for him to introduce the concept of the Antichrist is pretty radical. Popes don't usually do that. You know, not too many years ago, if somebody sort of like suggested that the Antichrist could be involved in what's happening in our culture, they would have been called a Protestant fundamentalist. It's a little hard to call Benedict that. <laughs> but it's really interesting. What he says is what a lot of people are sensing. It's almost impossible to explain how quickly 
all the powers and all the levers of society and culture have ended up in the hands of people hostile to Christ in the church so quickly. You know, Archbishop Gomez, just a couple days ago, they made the text of a speech he gave to a conference in Madrid or will be giving uh, available, and he, he sounded the alarm. He said, what we're dealing with in some of these aggressive social movements is not just a concern for social justice, but a new religion, a new ideology, a new anthropology uh, that has no place for Christ in the church. And we need to wake up and be realistic about what we're facing. You know, the, the harmony between the church and culture that used to be there is not there anymore, and we need a new strategy. And he says, my, my solution is very simple. We need to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ. Which leads us to, well, I don't know, there's so many places we could go. <laughs> Let me just remind you of what the Catechism says about the Antichrist, because it, it does seem somewhat applicable today. It says in section 675, it says, Before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception, offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. Jesus is an obstacle to world government. Jesus is an obstacle to the plan to de-emphasize religion's absolute claims to the truth so that we can all join together and solve global warming. Seriously, that's, that's what's going on. And unfortunately, so often it seems like the church is kind of taking a stance of being a chaplain to the world, blessing the endeavors of the world and maybe in a naive way, I don't know, but Honestly, the mission of the Catholic Church is not to save the Amazon. The mission of the Catholic Church is not to solve global warming, although we are in favor of everything that helps the human race and we want to contribute to it. But the mission of the Catholic Church is to proclaim boldly that Jesus Christ is the Lord and the Savior of the entire human race, and every single person on the face of this earth is called to believe in Jesus and repent and become a Catholic, become baptized. We're not hearing that, though. We're not hearing that, though. We're seeing lots of emphasis on blessing the efforts of the world to solve these problems. We're seeing lots of efforts to, I, I don't know. Anyway, that's, the catechism goes on in section 676. The Antichrist deception already begins to take shape in the world every time the claim is made to realize within history that messianic hope, which can only be realized beyond history through the eschatological judgment. This is kind of hard to believe, but it happened. Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, who worked for the KGB during Soviet Union times, just gave a speech that got translated into English and posted on a Russian website where Putin says, the West is going crazy with this woke ideology. 
He says, we tried this in the Soviet Union. This is just Marxism warmed over. This is the attempt to create the kingdom of God on earth and it just can't happen. It's gonna turn into a concentration camp. They're gonna start eliminating people who oppose the brave new world. Putin saying that the Judeo-Christian tradition is a safeguard of human beings. It's the only thing that saves people from this manipulation of trying to create a paradise on earth. He says, we tried it, don't do it. He says, you can do whatever you want, but we've been there and done that, and it's hell on earth. I, I did a video on that, I'm gonna post it on tomorrow on our YouTube channel. You can just go to YouTube and put in Renewal Ministries or Ralph Martin or something, and. Uh, I'm kind of doing a thing on Putin's warning, quoting him exactly, but it's so ironic that the president of the United States now is kind of advocating, you know, gender reassignment surgery for kids, advocating LGBTQ taking precedence over conscience rights, trying to expand abortion and have more babies killed. You know, that's the president of the United States. And the president of Russia is saying, we've been there, we've done that. That's, that's a recipe for disaster. And then we have Archbishop Gomez, thanks be to God, uh, raising the alarm here in the United States. You know, he's gonna take flack for that. Finally, in the Catechism 677, the church will enter the glory of the kingdom only through this final Passover when she will follow her Lord in his death and resurrection. The kingdom will be fulfilled then not by a historic triumph of the church through a progressive ascendancy, but only by God's victory over the final unleashing of evil, which will call to cause the bride to come down from heaven. God's triumph over the revolt of evil will take the form of the last judgment after the final cosmic upheaval of this passing world. Things are not going to get better before the Lord returns. We may have times, I don't know how close that is, I don't know whether we're living in the last time of the last time or not, but I know that John Paul II, before he got elected Pope, when he was in Philadelphia, and I've documented this, he said it several times in different cities in the United States, he said, We're now standing in the face of the greatest historical confrontation humanity has gone through. I do not think that wide circles of American society or wide circles of the Christian community realize this fully. We're now facing the final confrontation between the church and the anti-church, between the gospel and the anti-gospel, between Christ and the antichrist. This confrontation though lies within the plans of divine providence. It's a trial, it's a test which the whole church must take up and face courageously. Now one of my concerns is that because of lukewarmness and confusion and division in the church, most people are not ready to pass the test. Most people are not ready to resist evil. Most people are not willing to resist the intimidation, the threats of not getting into good universities or getting fired from jobs, being excluded from the country club, being fired from a university teaching job. Most people are not ready to resist that pressure. And Jesus warned us, he said, if you deny me before people, before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven, Matthew chapter five. He said this in the context of persecution. 
I think we need to get ready for persecution. We may not be thrown to the lions, but we may be intimidated and threatened and punished in many other ways. They call it soft persecution. And there's people there that would like to pass from soft persecution to hard persecution, believe me. We need to help our fellow Catholics get ready to resist evil. We need to help our fellow Catholics get into the kind of relationship with the world where they have a personal loyalty to Christ, where they love him, where they know him, where they know what he teaches, where they know what his, what his place is in, in God's plan. How blessed we are to live in the time of the Messiah. How blessed we are to live in a time where the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. I was just in the Portiuncula, favorite place on campus, of course. And, and looking at the Eucharistic Lord and uh, the word became flesh and, and, and died for us and rose again and is now in his risen body, present in a miraculous, mysterious, hard to explain way in the Eucharist and also at the right hand of the Father and also dwelling in our souls. You know, the reading today in the liturgy of the dedication of St. John Lateran uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, don't you know your temples of the Holy Spirit? You're the building of God. God's living in you. You're God's building. And if anybody destroys God's temple, you, God will destroy them because you're holy. I don't know. We read these things in the liturgy and do we get shocked by them? You know, we should be. I mean, it's kind of shocking to hear that. You know, Peter Crave wrote a book called Jesus Shock and Honestly, Jesus is shocking. He really, really is. And because we're so used to hearing the stuff, we don't really hear what's being said. Almost everything Jesus says is calling for a radical commitment. I mean, when he says stuff like, unless you love me more than your mother and father, you're not worthy to be a disciple of mine. Well, how about really kind of paying attention to that in our discipleship classes, in our parishes? No, discipleship's become a new buzzword, but it's very ambiguous. It's very vague. Everybody gets labeled a disciple because that's just what everybody in theory is. But most people aren't disciples. Most people haven't renounced everything to follow Jesus. Most people don't love him more than emotional relationships that they're tied to. Now, this sounds harsh, but Jesus is basically saying, you need me to be in your life like that for everything else in your life to work right. You need me to be in your life like this for your marriage to work right, for your friendships to work right, for your parenting to work right. And Jesus says, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and his holiness, and these other things will be added as well. Love of neighbor is the second commandment. So loving God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength isn't to take away of our love of others. It's to purify it. It's to deepen it. Uh, like First Peter, it says, uh, purify your souls for a fervent love of the brothers. We should love people even more when Jesus is first in our life, when God is first in our life. But, but that means a renunciation, a letting go of I, making idols out of relationships, making, letting go of making idols out of success, letting go of making idols out of money or whatever, or sex or whatever. Now, when John Paul II wrote about this in his book called The Sign of Contradiction, he asked us to pay attention to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
So here he's talking about the final confrontation between the gospel and the anti-gospel, the church and the anti-church. And there is an anti-gospel right now in the Catholic Church. There really is. There's really an anti-church right now in the Catholic Church. And the spirit of antichrist is definitely present. I mean, look at the divisions that have now come out into the open. You know, when, when Cardinal Gregory said, of course he was going to give communion to President Biden, Archbishop Chapu from Philadelphia said, no, we can't do that. When Archbishop Gomez said, we got a big problem now with the results of the recent election, we got an administration committed to abortion and LGBTQ and submersion of, of rights of conscience. We got a big problem. Cardinal Subich from Chicago publicly rebuked him and said, you shouldn't be saying things like that. When Bishop McElroy said something very similar, Bishop Daly up in Spokane said, no, no, we can't, we can't do this. Uh, whole bishops' conferences are in division. The German bishops' conference is thinking that they're going to improve things by uh, minimizing uh, the church's teaching on marriage and family life and sexuality. They think that they're going to win a hearing from a secularized culture by downplaying those aspects of the truth that the culture doesn't like. Meanwhile, over in Poland and Ukraine, the bishops there are saying, stop, what you're doing is undermining our people's commitment and confidence to the Catholic teaching about marriage and family life. And they're, they're being shaken in their commitment to live chaste lives. Stop. The German bishops aren't stopping. Then we have Cardinal Zen from Hong Kong calling Cardinal Parolin the, the Secretary of State, second most powerful people in the Vatican, a liar about what they're doing with China. And then we have Bishop Sarando, who's head of the Pontifical Council of Pontifical Institute for Social Science, returning from the People's Republic of China, declaring that they are implementing Catholic social teaching better than anybody in the world. Whoa! What kind of craziness do we have going on? What kind of insanity? Or, or what kind of blindness and spiritual blindness and doctrinal confusion? When people lose their confidence in the truth of the faith, they turn to improving this world as the meaningful thing to do. And I'm afraid there's some of that going on even in Rome. And I'm not kind of imputing motives. I'm not, I'm not making judgments, but these are public things. These are public statements, public actions. You don't have to guess. And then the Institute for John Paul II for Marriage and the Family, the two professors that were the carriers of the teaching there, their positions were made redundant. They were eliminated. And two more theologians were brought in from northern Italy who have published dissenting statements on church teaching on sexuality and marriage. And then the person appointed as head of the new John Paul II Institute, which is going to focus now on social science more than doctrine, is Archbishop Paglia, who's most known for commissioning a homoerotic mural on the wall of his cathedral and bankrupting his diocese. What, I mean, is somebody asleep at the switch? Or is somebody very awake at the switch and is manipulating things in a particular direction? Does the Pope know what's going on? Or is this what he wants is going on? I don't know, but there's confusion.
then of course they say that one picture is worth a thousand words, and we had the Amazon Synod where that memorable picture of people in a circle in the Vatican Garden prostrating themselves before a little statue of a naked woman in the presence of Pope Francis, and then the same statue being brought into St. Peter's Basilica in a canoe and then being placed in the Synod Hall, and then finally some Austrian lay people threw it into the river. In the meantime, the Vatican press office would never tell us what that statue signified, and then the, the Italian police found the statue and brought it back to the Vatican and came into the Synod Hall again as the St. Peter's, and the Pope said, let's thank the Italian police for recovering Pachamama. So the cat was let out of the bag by the Pope. Pachamama is an earth goddess venerated as an idol in Latin America. Now, I don't know if we're just talking about naivete or contradiction or confusion or well-meaningness. When the Pope published the post-synodal apostolic exhortation on the Synod, he said, you can use images like this without idolatrous intent. You can, but is it a good idea to? When people are already confused about, don't all religions lead to the end of the same thing? And it doesn't really matter whether you're a Christian or a Hindu or a Muslim. And we're all you know, heading towards the same way. And we all want to work for world peace. I mean, it, it just kind of confuses people. So anyway, um, John Paul II said, take a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as a key to understanding what's happening. What does 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says? It says, don't be alarmed by purported prophecies that say that the Lord has already come. He hasn't. And he's not going to come until two things happen. The first thing that Paul identifies, he says, the Lord will not return until the great apostasy happens. Now, what's an apostasy? An apostasy is not something that pagans do. It's something that Christians do. It's a turning away from faith on the part of those who once had it. For several centuries now, there's been a great apostasy going on amongst the traditional Catholic and Christian nations, which has accelerated. I used to say there were three European countries resisting the onslaught. Two of them have fallen, Ireland and Malta. Poland's hanging on by a thread. I was asked to do a, a speech to uh, people in Lithuania about a week ago. They said this whole world culture is coming like a bulldozer into Lithuania. People are being pushed to the side. Voices are being silenced. The government is now in the hands of people who favor this. We need help. Uh, the people in Poland said the same thing. They already translated this book into Polish and published it within a year of it being published in the United States. And they sent copies to all the Polish bishops Say our bishops need to be strengthened. One of the saddest things I've seen in recent years, don't worry, we're going we're gonna to end up on a joyful note. <laughs> but you got to stay to the end. So you have to go through death before you get to the resurrection, okay? So we have to participate in dying with Christ. We have to look at reality. We have to look at the problems, and then we have to see what the solutions are. I'm going to talk about some solutions. Oh, time flies when you're having fun and when your microphone fails. Okay. <laughs> One of the saddest things I've seen in recent years is after Ireland legalized abortion, Tens of thousands of young people rushing into the streets celebrating 
that Ireland can now kill babies too, just like the rest of Europe. They had gotten on the right side of history. 800 years of persecution under the oppression of the British, where the priests risked their lives to say mass out in the countryside on mass rocks, couldn't break the Irish faith. 30 years of prosperity lulled them into going along to get along, or getting along to go along. That's why Jesus is so hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of God. When you're prosperous, you think you don't need the Lord. When you're prosperous, you think the rules don't apply to you. When you're prosperous, you think that you can control whatever happens in your life. You've got power. You've got money. You can pay people off. You can do whatever you want. And it lures people into an independence from God, which is, which is terrible. The second, well, I are, we, are we in the great apostasy? Is this the great apostasy that Paul's talking about? I don't know, but it's pretty powerful. It's pretty universal. It's, it's going for everybody. You know, one of the leading gay organizations in the United States said, we're coming for your children. And they are. They're coming for our children. They're coming for us. They're not going to rest, not only that we are tolerant, about people who want to live a different kind of life than Christ leads us to, but they don't want us even thinking a different thought. They really want us to believe that the perversion and the contradiction of God's will for human beings is good and virtuous and maybe even superior. It's a tremendous inverse. It's like what the prophets said in the Old Testament to false preachers, false prophets, and false teachers, and false leaders, saying, you're calling virtue what's actually vice, and you're calling vice what it's actually virtue, and we're coming to that point where the blessed words of Jesus pointing out the path of salvation is being called hate speech. It's love speech. It's salvation, it's salvation speech. You know, some people pick and choose from what Jesus is saying. He's still a popular figure in certain parts of the culture. He occasionally appears on the cover of Time magazine. You know, every now and then the History Channel does a, a special on him and particularly his relationship to Mary Magdalene. You know. <laughs> but uh, the real Jesus is not a tame lion. The real Jesus is shocking us into salvation. The real Jesus is shocking us into repentance and faith. I don't know whether this is the great apostasy or not. We won't know until we see if the Lord comes or not. That's it. We don't know. But something significant is happening. The second thing that Paul says needs to happen before the Lord returns is a certain restraint that's been placed on the work of the evil one will be removed and there will be a manifestation of lawlessness and the lawless one. And then it's, and you know, I would say that every restraint on evil has systematically been removed and there's hardly anything left. And usually the things that are still left, people target and they go after them until they're been taken away too. We, the restrainer on killing babies has been taken away. The restrainer on killing old people have been taken away. The restrainer on harvesting organs before people die has sotto voce been taken away. The, the, rest, the restrainer on corrupting children has been taken away. But then 
Paul says, the Antichrist is going to use every means at his disposal for even the elect to be deceived. He's going to use false signs and wonders. That's why true signs and wonders are so important. True signs and wonders that bring people to conversion, to repentance, to belief in Jesus, rather than false signs and wonders which mesmerize people and fascinate them and raise curiosity and leads them to the magician or whoever's doing the false signs and wonders. And he's going to use every deception available to him so that those destined to perish, perish. This is scary talk. Who's destined to perish? It goes on to say, those who refuse to open their hearts to the truth in order to be saved. Another translation says, those who didn't love the truth. And one of the things that's true about Jesus, and this was prophesied over him as a baby in the temple, Simeon picked up baby Jesus and he said he's going to be a sign of contradiction. He's going to be a cause for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. He's going to reveal the secrets of hearts. We see, if you read the Gospels with new eyes, Jesus is constantly becoming a sign of contradiction. There's those who fall at his feet and worship him, and there's those who pick up stones to kill him. He's revealing the secrets of hearts. He's revealing pre decisions that people have already made where they have chosen to love the darkness more than the light. And so they don't, they don't, they hate the light. They don't want to come to the light. They want to kill the light. So Jesus is revealing decisions that people have made. There's always the hope of repentance, but it's a very serious matter to close your hearts to the truth and not love the truth and to prefer darkness to light, and some people do, and that's what Jesus does. He reveals that. And then it says, when people close their hearts to the truth, a deeper deception comes upon them. And you get the impression when you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that it's very, very hard to come back when you double down on darkness, when you double down on rejection of the light. Okay, let's, let's talk about what we can do. First of all, we need to examine our own relationship to the Lord. We need to answer the question for ourselves, who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? He's not just the religious leader. He's not just the great teacher. He's not just the Savior, whatever that means. He's the Lord. And the only sensible response to make to Jesus of he's the Lord is total surrender. And that's what he really expects. That's what he's asking for in the gospel. That's what it means to be his disciple. To believe in him, to trust him, to carefully listen to him, and to obey him. Hebrews chapter, is it five or nine? It's one of the two. It says that Jesus became the source of salvation for those who obey him. It's not enough just to have warm feelings towards Jesus. You know, Luke chapter 13, one of the hugest deceptions in the world today is that broad and wide is the way that leads to heaven and almost everybody's going there. That's not what Jesus said, did he? Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. I know any of you have heard me talk, you know I always get that passage in there somehow or other because it's a huge deception and, and people's salvation depend on it. 
What Jesus said is broad and wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many are traveling that way. But narrow is the door that leads to life, difficult the road, and few are her finding it. Now, Jesus didn't say this because this is how it has to be. Jesus didn't say this because this is how he wants it to be. We know Jesus was weeping because so many people were on the Broadway heading to destruction and weren't paying attention to him. He was sitting on the hill of Jerusalem, weeping over his own people, knowing the judgment that was coming for their unbelief. You know, we don't think about unbelief as a sin, but Father Francis Martin, who taught here oftentimes for summer conferences and first semester and everything, scripture scholar said, one of the gravest sins revealed in the New Testament is the sin of unbelief. Not believing the testimony that God is giving to Jesus. Not believing Jesus and the authority with which he spoke and the anointing of the Holy Spirit with which he spoke. Not believing the signs and wonders that God did through Jesus, not believing the witness of the apostles, not believing the inspired writings of the apostles in sacred scripture. One of the things we have to do as we look to our own relationship with Jesus is to recover our confidence in the truthfulness of sacred scripture. It all begins there. Everything flows from there. It flows through the tradition. It flows into the catechism of the Catholic Church. What does Vatican II say about how us Catholics should approach sacred scripture? In Dei Verbum, section 11, it says, Everything asserted by the sacred author should be considered to be asserted by the Holy Spirit and to teach firmly, faithfully, and without error those truths that God wished to put into the sacred writings for the sake of our salvation. What a treasure we have in sacred scripture. The primary author of sacred scripture is God. And the Catholic Church teaches that what's asserted by the sacred writer should be considered to be asserted by the Holy Spirit and to teach firmly, faithfully, and without error those truths that God wished to put into sacred writings for the sake of our salvation. These words are words of life. These words are for our salvation. We ignore them we don't, at our peril and at other people's peril. We need to know the word of God. We don't know the real Jesus unless we know his word. Unless we know what Jesus says about himself, unless we know what Jesus says about us, unless we know what Jesus says about the path to eternal life, we, we're, we'll make up our own religion. We'll pick and choose. We'll say, I like what Jesus says here. I don't like what he says there. He's God, man. Come on. We need to fall at his feet and just receive his word and be formed by the word of God. And every day, the writings, the, the readings in the liturgy, there's, there's, there's stuff there that's being revealed to us. We should ask the Lord to show us, you know. The second thing we need to do is to get really clear on the main point that the culture is coming against us right now, and that's on the identity of male and female marriage and sexuality. There's a lot of confusion even in the church here. I told you there's whole bishops' conferences that want to run away from our teaching. There's individual bishops that want to kind of do that. So in the midst of division, in the midst of confusion, what do we do? We go to the deposit of faith. We go to what's been revealed to us in the Catholic Church, what's there certainly, no matter what different bishops might say or different theologians might say. It's there reliably in the catechism of the Catholic Church, but it comes from the apostolic writings. It comes from the words of Jesus and the writings of the apostles. First Corinthians chapter six, Paul says, don't let any, I'll, I'll finish in another 10 minutes. You know, normally I don't like to go more than 15 minutes, but I'm feeling particularly inspired being at Franciscan University. <laughs> I'll, I'll just go 10 more minutes. 
First Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, don't let anybody deceive you. The immoral will not enter into the kingdom of God. The underlying Greek word for immoral is porneia. Dr. Mary Healy, who's on our faculty at the seminary in Detroit, is on the Pontifical Biblical Commission. She's also on a committee for revising the translation of the New American Bible. And she says, they're probably going to translate it for what it really should be. The sexually immoral will not enter the kingdom of God. But then Paul goes on, he makes it crystal clear. He says, the fornicator, the adulterer, the person who engages in homosexual activity. And these days you have to say, he's not talking about inclination. He's not talking about tendency. He's not talking about temptation. He's talking about engaging in homosexual acts. The thief, the robber, the drunkard, the greedy will not enter the kingdom of God. But then the note of hope, he says, and such were some of you, but you've been delivered by the blood of Jesus Christ, the waters of baptism, the power of the Holy Spirit. So people who are locked in sin, who are locked in deception, can be set free by the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the sacraments of the church. First Corinthians chapter 6 is an isolated text. Even if it was, it would be 100% true. Galatians chapter 5 says the same thing. Paul goes through a similar list of junk. And he says, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do these things will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, is that relevant information? Is, is that a truth that people need to know? Yes, they do. And if we care about other people's salvation, somewhere in the conversation, somewhere in the relationship, you don't have to lead with it. You don't have to shout it from the rooftop. But at some point, we need to tell people the truth about what will keep them out of the kingdom of God in the area of sexual morality. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says the impure person will not enter the kingdom of God. And because of this, the wrath of God is breaking out against the disobedient. What's the wrath of God? God is 100% opposed to what distorts his creation. God is 100% opposed to what, what, what distorts his people, what keeps them from the happiness that he, he's designed for them, that keeps them from the gift of sexuality and a marriage between one man and one woman open to children. That's it. Any other exercise of sexuality outside of holy marriage open to children is grievously wrong in the eyes of the Lord. But there's a whole culture now that's penetrated the church where living together, quote, also known as fornication, is okay. Where cheating, also known as adultery, sometimes happens. Where uh, people should, should, are entitled to sexual fulfillment even if it's in a homosexual way. No! No. You know, we just had a seminar with my senior Charles Pope from Washington, D.C. last week for priests and bishops and clergy and deacons. And my senior Pope says, people sometimes say, are you telling me that I have to live my whole life without sexual relationships? Yes, I am. <laughs> and and, and that's, the path to, that's the path to holiness for you. That's the path to happiness for you. Are you telling me that because I'm not attracted to women and can't get married, that I, can, I can't have sexual relationships with men. Oh, yes, that's what I'm telling you. That's what Jesus is telling you. So, you know, get with the program. I mean, he says it better than me, but, you know, you, you get the point. Like, he, he doesn't pussyfoot around. He doesn't kind of hem and haw. He doesn't kind of give ambiguous answers. He's not ashamed of the gospel. 
know, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. A lot of people today are ashamed of the gospel. We need to recover our confidence in the truth of the faith and, and our joy in the truth of the faith and our joy that God's revealed his plan for us in this most sensitive area. Revelation chapter 21. Jesus says, don't, he doesn't say it, he doesn't say it in Revelation 21, but he says in Matthew's gospel, chapter 5 or 10, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but rather be afraid of those who can destroy body and soul in hell. Or yeah, then he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better to enter the kingdom without a hand or without an eye than to go down to hell with an intact body. It ties in what he says, what is it profit a man to gain the whole world but suffer the loss of his soul? We've got to keep our clear eyes that what life is all about is making one decision. It's, it's deciding for or against Jesus. That's the only significant decision that human beings face. The only reason why God created the human race was to be one with him. That's the purpose of human life. God created human beings to be one with him, to form his body to be one spirit, one body with the Lord, the church. That's the purpose of human life. And if people gain everything else but don't have that, they're, they're missing the whole reason why they're alive and they're separating themselves from the happiness that God designed them for. Revelation chapter 1 says, don't be afraid of the, those who kill the body, but be afraid of the second death. What's the second death? The second death is eternal separation from God. The second death is also called the lake of fire. Who's in the lake of fire? You might want to pay attention to this because I don't think you want to be in the lake of fire. They talk about murderers being in the lake of fire. Fornicators being in the lake of fire. Isn't that kind of harsh on people living together? Well, it's a, it's a grievous offense against God. The greedy are in the lake of fire. So that should put people, you know, on, on guard with their pocketbooks, you know? You know, is Jesus Lord of our finances? Are we generous? Are we giving almsgiving to cover over sin? That's what Jesus says. Okay, one last thing. The big deception is that everybody's going to heaven. It's not true. I hope it's true. I wish it were true. I'm going to work with my whole life so that more and more people may end up in heaven rather than hell. I quoted Matthew chapter 7, but Luke chapter 13. I'm going to end with this and maybe a few final hopeful words. People ask Jesus point blank, will there be few in number who are saved? Now, if I were around, I'd, 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 I'd be interested in, in that question, you know. What, what's Jesus going to say? Because he doesn't give numbers, because he doesn't give percentage, we tend to not pay attention to what he says. But what he says is a very direct answer to the question. And it's very relevant. It's very easy to understand. He says, try very hard to enter by the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter but will not be able to. Matthew heard what Jesus said. Luke heard what Jesus said. But then it says, the master will close the door. And there'll be people outside knocking on the door saying, Master, let us in. We, we ate and drank with you in the streets. We hung out with you. We came to your teaching services. We came to your healing service, maybe. You know, we, we were sympathetic to you. And then the master, who's called Lord, says, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you wicked ones. Now, that sounds a little unjust, a little unproportionate, a little bit harsh, doesn't it? How could Jesus say, depart from me, you evil ones? Because Jesus was pouring out himself for them, and they treated it like an interesting evening event. They, let, let's go see the new rabbi and what people are saying about him. They heard his teaching, but they didn't enter into relationship with him. They didn't believe and repent. They didn't become disciples. So it's an awful thing not to pay attention to who Jesus is and what he's saying. Jesus says, if you love me, do what I'm asking you to do. So the door closes and they're outside. The door's going to close on everybody. The door's going to close on human history. The door's going to close on each of our lives, and we want to be in the Father's house. That's what Jesus has come, to bring us back to the Father's house. Jesus wants to bring us back to paradise. The door's opened again, but Jesus is the door. We have to go through the door. I'm not going to get into how do people get saved who haven't heard the gospel. I wrote a whole book on that. It's possible, but difficult. It's possible, but difficult. We need to recognize that if we love people, we're not just going to pray for them to get into good schools or get healed of their illnesses, but we're going to pray for their eternal salvation. We're going to pray that they end their lives as friends of Jesus, repentant for their sins, reconciled to the Father, rather than dying rebellious with hard hearts, rejecting the mercy of God. So, not only am I not discouraged, but I'm actually excited. Something's happening. It's a time where something big is going on. It's a tremendous assault of the evil one on Christ and the church, but it's also a time for us to step up and to boldly follow Jesus and boldly proclaim him, just like Archbishop Gomez just called the whole church in America to do. It's a time for us to examine our conscience. It's time for us to stop straddling the issue. It's a time for us to recover our confidence in the truth of sacred scripture. It's a time for us to recover our, our zeal for the gospel. So um, it's also really important that we stay connected to each other. We, we need each other. We, we need to support each other. We need to encourage one another. It's really easy to get confused, to get discouraged, to get picked off. Uh, when we're not in relationship with each other. So we need to be with others who want to follow the Lord also. And we need to really go forward joyfully, you know. You know, it's, it's a great privilege to be a disciple of Jesus. It's a great privilege to live in a time where we can know what God's plan is for humanity. It's a great privilege to be called into a service, and all of us have been called into a service. So we have a very high calling. You know, we have to make a choice between perishing or eternal life, it's kind of like a no-brainer, but because our brains are so addled and befuddled and darkened, it's a struggle. But we're being offered eternal life for a very short time on earth, with a very short time with suffering and struggles and tests and temptations. If we just hang in there with Jesus, the sufferings of the present age won't be worth comparing to the glory that will be ours when Christ Jesus returns. And I think the resurrection bodies are going to be really fabulous, you know. 
you know, you know, really, really fabulous, you know, no more dieting, no more exercising, no more doctor's visits, no more rotting teeth, you know, really, I mean, just incredible, incredible, glorious life forever, never ends. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, we thank you for you. We thank you we're living in a time where the words become flesh and we can touch you and see you and feel you in the sacraments and in one another and your sacred scripture and in prayer. We, we thank you for, for taking away the, the veil that blinds the world, the veil that veils the whole human race and letting us see you clearly. Help us to follow you more, more closely and love you more dearly. And uh, fear you more than men, fear you more than the opinion of people, and not blush for the gospel. Amen. Mm -hmm.